Hello and welcome to Crime Theories of the Record, the podcast series where I talk about my interpretation of crime theories. This is your host, Karen. In today's episode, I'll be introducing you to Robert Agnew's strain theory, also referred to the general theory of crime. And weirdly, both theorists are named Robert, so let's not confuse our bobs. But before I jump into this, I would like to remind everyone that I have done some research on the topic, but don't consider myself an expert in every aspect of my field. To recap from last week's episode, American sociologist Robert Merton theory stated that social structures may pressure citizens to commit crimes. Regarding anime, Durkheim focuses on aspirations while Merton focuses on means and ways to attain these aspirations and goals. Agnew believed that Merchant's theory was too vague in nature and did not account for criminal activity, which did not involve financial gain. First, Merchant concentrated specifically on the lower class, although persons of all socioeconomic classes engaged in crime. Secondly, Merchant could not explain crime other than financial crimes. Now, if you want to learn more or need to revisit the topic, feel free to pause here and go back to last week's episode. Now that we're on the same page, let's dive into how Robert Agnew became a social theorist. While a doctoral student at the University of North Carolina, Agnew was interested in studying the sources of creativity. This project did not come to completion because no accessible data set on creativity existed, leaving Agnew with the challenge on how to complete with his dissertation. Which, seems, because I have been there before and I had to create my own data set. It is said that Agnew felt that with each passing week, his levels of strain increased. But a fellow graduate student alerted him to the Youth in Transition Survey, which contained, among other variables, measures of delinquency. With data now in hand, Agnew vigorously delved into the delinquency literature and despite criticism of the perspective, was persuaded that a broader version of strain theory held promise. His work was informed by his knowledge of social psychology. Classic strain theory, he failed, focused on a kind of strain, the inability to attain future economic success that was too distant or far in the future to affect youth's behavior. Oliver Cohen, 1955, was, to a degree, one exception, because he focused on the status frustration felt by students among their peers. In a similar way, Agnew wished to focus strain theory more on the everyday experiences that could create strains in people's lives. Thus, for Agnew, the major strains conducive to crime seem to be more immediate in nature, such as being physically abused by a peer or having a serious argument with a family member. This insight was supported by the research in social psychology, including the stress and aggression research. This line of inquiry eventually led to his developing a revised strain theory, which was the prelude to his publication of his general strain theory in 1992. His most systematic presentation of the theory subsequently appeared in Pressure into Crime, an overview of general strain theory. Again, Agnew argued that Merton's classic strain theory identified one category of strain, which involved being blocked from desired goals. Unlike Merton, Agnew did not focus exclusively on economic goals. He explained this type of strain to include blockage from any positively valued goal. This might include not attaining economic success, but it also might entail not making it to a sports team at school or not achieving status in one's peer group or even something so mundane as not being able to obtain a date for an event. Kind of depends on like what you're doing. First, Agnew 1992 argued that strain can be generated from the actual or anticipated removal and or loss of positively valued stimuli 
from an individual. For example, this strain might happen when parents take away your phone or the car, depending on your age, which can be seen as the removal of a privilege or luxury to even the loss of life. In these situations, people might take illegal substances or abuse legal substances to manage the stress or as a way to cope or they might resort to illegal means to replace what was taken away, which could be anything material. Back to the car example though. If your parents took away the car, you might turn to stealing the car or to seek revenge against those who caused such strain, such as assault the parent or whoever removed the positive value stimuli. And by assault, it could be bearable or physical. Second, strain can be induced by the actual or anticipated presentation of negative or noxious stimuli. These adverse situations might include exposure to a sexually or physically abusive relationship, living in a family consumed by conflict, or more simply put, placing yourself in a situation that causes you anxiety or any negative reaction. As Agnew 1992 pointed out, crime and delinquency may take place when people respond to this adversity by seeking to escape, such as running away from home, or to eliminate or obtain revenge against the source of that stress, such as murder or abuse, or even to duel the psychic pain by taking drugs or just any substance. And off the record, I just want to say that next time you get a missing child alert, an amber alert, or a silver alert, or any type of missing person alert, and you complain, check your privilege. Someone out there is suffering such strain and has responded by running away in order to seek safety. Though this is not always the case depending on the alert, the amount of comments I have read in online platforms when I come up on missing persons flyers and posts is concerning. Most comments victim blame the juvenile and disregard them as runaways when this is not always the case depending on the alert. Sometimes I'm even appalled when I hear public servants, especially law enforcement professionals, working with runaway children and missing persons, not validating the child or juvenile's experience and trauma, and instead listening to the misconceptions and the stigma of running away, which are only worse when the person belongs to one or more marginalized group. And I understand that it can be frustrating for professionals to encounter someone who has a history of running away. But instead of disregarding it as problematic behavior, you should be wondering what trajectory of strain is this person facing. Are they being abused? Are they being rejected by their family and peers for not fitting the norm? Because running away is a symptom of one or more adverse experience or experiences present in a person's life, most commonly violence or a form of abuse. But it is equally important in our understanding of running away that they are different trajectories that people follow. But now back to Agnes' strain theory. In short, whereas classic strain theory focused on one category of strain, Agnew made the theory more general by identifying three categories of strain. In retrospect, this insight might seem simple since anyone could know that individuals face a variety of strains in their lives. But important theoretical advances often are obvious. Only after they have been illuminated do we are like, oh yeah, yeah, I totally, totally get it. It's obvious. But Further, since insights influence thinking only if they are presented in a way that promises to explain a phenomenon, in this case, crime, in a way. Agnew succeeded at this task. Agnew assumed that in general, the higher the dose of strain that a person experiences, the greater the likelihood of the person becoming engaged in crime or in some form of deviance. Even so, theorists in the classic strain theory tradition realize that strain is not related to crime in an ironclad way. Once people are under strain, they may or may not adapt to this state through criminal acts, heavy on the may not. Like recall 
Martin's typology of, of adaptations. A complete theory of crime, therefore, must include not only an explanation of what causes strain, but also an explanation of what causes people under strain to respond to criminal conduct. This insight also is found in the early work of Clogward and Olin, 1916, and I probably butchered the last names, who argue that access to different types of illegitimate means shapes the kind of adaptations people make to strain. Thus, Agnew 1992 set out to separate the constraints to non-delinquent and delinquent coping or as some might refer to as the variables that quote-unquote condition the response to strain. He identified a range of factors that diminish the risk of criminal adaptation, such as the availability of other goals to substitute for blocked goals, individual coping resources, the delivery of social support from others, the fear of the consequences of legal punishments, the presence of strong social bonds, and the denial of access to illegitimate means. Other factors that foster the predisposition to criminality increase the likelihood of crime. This would include, for example, low self-control, prior criminal learning experiences such as association with delinquent friends, peers, or gangs, the internalization of antisocial beliefs, and the tendency to blame others for being in strain-inducing predicaments. Off the record, I think it is fair to say that Agnew borrowed many of his conditional variables from other criminological theories such as social bonds and whatnot. Whereas these other theories could argue that these factors have a direct effect on crime, general strain theory contends that they increase criminal behavior only when they occur in conjunction with strain. For this reason, the conditioning variables often are measured in empirical tests with an interaction term. And for those who have encountered many of the research regarding strain theory, or you might be familiar with the equation strain times number of delinquent friends. Finally, Agnew included emotions within general strain theory. In his view, negative emotions create pressure for corrective action, individuals feel bad and want to do something about it. He focused in particular on the emotion of anger. General strain theory predicts that when strain elicits anger, crime, especially violent crime, is more likely to happen. Because Agnew stated general strain theory in a very clear way, this perspective has been subjected to numeral empirical tests from its inception to present time. Although the results are not consistent for every type of strain, there is consistent empirical evidence that exposure to strain increases the likelihood of criminal offending. However, the problem is that when you look at strains, you can think of like many types of strains. And when it comes to research and empirical work, they seem unending. So when you study and read these studies, it might show that strain-inducing situations are linked to crime, but they do not make sense of all the findings and tell us which strains are most criminogenic. Agnew understood this challenge and addressed it by identifying the strains that are most likely to lead to crime. Secondly, although some positive findings emerge, Studies provide less support for the idea that adaptations to strain are conditioned by a range of other factors. These findings may occur because the methodology of using an interaction term such as strain times conditioning variable is too crude after the complex way in which strain is conditioned by individual and social factors. Which is understandable because even though deciding if an action is criminal, it can be easily assumed to be black and white. The motive and the person's free will can be gray. So it's that kind of like human nature aspect of things that we cannot account for. 
But another possibility is that the conditioning variables identified by acnium mainly have direct effects on criminal behavior rather than coming into play when a person is under strain. For example, low self-control may cause crime by itself, that is, regardless of whether the strain is present or absent. In fact, this is the position that control theories could take, and we'll talk about them later. Anyways, these inconsistent findings have led Agnew to elaborate his theory. Third, Though there is some evidence that the combination of strain and anger increases the risk of criminal conduct, what remains to be clarified is whether strain creates anger, which then leads to crime, or whether people who are angry are more likely to create strain in their lives, which then leads to crime. Of course, there might be some correlation that they might be linked to crime, like it is a possibility, but it's always that human factor that creates all those what-ifs, so it's kind of hard to know. And lastly, most of the tests of general strain theory are drawn from self-report studies of youths who attend school and live with their families. Further support for this perspective, however, comes from Bill McCarty and John Hagen's research on delinquency among youths who have left home and are living on the streets. Consistent with Agnew's work, their analysis reveals how adverse or nauseous conditions can result in delinquent involvement both directly and indirectly. They observe that youths who leave home often live on quote-unquote mean streets where they experience hunger, unemployment, and a lack of shelter. In a direct attempt to alleviate these adverse situations, they steal food and obtain money by pilfering property and by prostitution in some cases. Other adverse conditions influence delinquency indirectly by causing youths to take to the streets in the first place. Originally set forth in 1992, general strain theory is now more than two decades old, give or take. Some theories are stated and then left unrevised there, but Agnew has continued to refine his theory by focusing on identifying which strains are the most criminogenic and on clarifying when criminal coping occurs. A number of studies have found support for the proposition that exposure to strain increases the risk of criminal involvement. But like I mentioned before, the difficulty is that these studies often have measured a wide variety of strains using a wide variety of measures. Although Agnew stated his perspective parsimoniously, he identifies three major types of strain. Each category of strain covers numerous subtypes of strain. For general strain theory to make sense, it must address the issue of which strains are criminogenic and which are not. And it is essential for future research to focus on this issue as well as gender. And as if it wasn't already hard enough, nearly a decade after he first set forth general strain theory, Agnew took up the challenge of specifying the strains most likely to lead to crime and delinquency, like I mentioned before. He listed four factors that increase the likelihood that strain will prompt a criminal adaptation. This categorization of strain is intended to guide research on general strain theory. First, the strain is seen as unjust. When individuals perceive that the strain they are feeling is due to unfair treatment, they are likely to become angry. As noted previously, general strain theory contends that anger increases the risk of offending. Second, the strain is high in magnitude. When under severe strain, it is difficult to ignore the strain, keeps one's emotions under control, and resolve the strain in legal ways. To the extent that crime can relieve the strain, its immediate benefits may outweigh the more distant and uncertain cause that such conduct might elicit from the law. Third, the strain is caused by or associated with low social control. And lastly, the strain creates some pressure or incentive to engage in criminal coping. In response, Agnew 2013 recently revisited general strain theory to focus more clearly on the issue of when criminal coping is likely. According to Agnew, addressing this issue is complicated by two considerations. First, 
Strain does not usually lead to crime, in part because people have a range of conventional strategies to deal with these experiences. Though some may argue it is free will, others will argue that they outweigh the pros and cons. Secondly, only certain individuals experiencing certain types of strain in certain circumstances engage in criminal coping. This set of factors must converge to create a strong propensity for criminal coping. This observation is likely correct, but would probably be too hard to test using conventional statistical approaches. Agnew 2013 has diagrammed a model of the coping process in general strain theory. The model has four stages. In the first stage, individuals experience or anticipate experiencing an objective strain. In the second stage, individuals subjectively evaluate or cognitively appraise the objective strain. Evaluations of the magnitude and injustice are particularly important in the prediction of criminal coping. In the third stage, individuals experience a negative emotional reaction to strain. And in the fourth stage, individuals cope with their strain with negative emotions providing the major impetus for coping. In this model, conditioning variables can affect the coping process at two links in the causal chain. First, they can affect how objective strain is subjectively interpreted, which in turn affects the nature and intensity of the emotional reaction. For example, let us assume that someone is in a public setting and depending on perspective is being teased or insulted, being told a backhand comment or something of those sorts. One person might interpret this as humorous or the insult as not harmful or important. Another person might interpret the comment as disrespectful, become very angry and wish to retaliate to restore their honor. Conditioning variables can affect how individuals deal with their emotional reaction. Let us return to our example. One person who feels disrespected and becomes angry but who is high on self-control and has strong conventional values may still walk away or merely retaliate with a comeback. But another individual who is low on self-control and has internalized the code of the street might cope with the feeling of growing angry by assaulting the person who had insulted them. As Agnew 2013 noted, criminal coping will be affected by individual characteristics, such as problem-solving skills and level of control, pro-social versus antisocial attitudes and personality, and by situational characteristics that determine the cause and benefits of a criminal act. These factors influence the subjective evaluation of objective strains, including the perceived magnitude and injustice of strains. They influence the emotional reaction to strains, including the individual's sensitivity to strains and the emotions experienced when upset, such as anger, depression, and fear, and they directly influence the choice of coping strategies. In particular, they influence the ability to engage in different strategies that cause and benefits of the different strategies and the disposition for these strategies. To recap, some people have associated anime and strain theory with the movie Catch Me If You Can. Spoiler alert! In the movie, the character Leonardo DiCaprio plays worked as a doctor, a lawyer, and as a co-pilot for a major airline all before his 18th birthday. A master of deception, he was also a brilliant forger whose skill gave him his first real claim to fame. At the age of 17, he became the most successful bank robber in the history of the United States. FBI agent Carl, who is played by Tom Hanks, makes it his prime mission to capture Frank and to bring him to justice. But I won't spoil all the movie because the point is that Frank uses illegitimate means to achieve success. 
Some argue that what you see in the movie is more anime than Strain and that Strain theory is depicted better with the Aladdin movie. Pick your poison, but I think that the reason this conversation even happened is that depending on your age, race, gender, sex, and socioeconomic background, you will face different types of strain. If you are interested in learning more, I recommend you read the book Out of Control, Assessing the General Theory of Crime. But shifting our focus just a little bit from strain theory, tune in to my next episode where we will be exploring the American dream in crime. Thank you for listening and choosing this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify or whatever platform you're listening from. And don't forget to tune in for the next episode. Off the record, if you need help visualizing these theories, go check us up on Instagram at ct dot off the record